Steve and I investigate conspiracy and vintage masters on episode 36 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 36 of So Many Insane Plays, where we investigate conspiracy for vintage playables and discuss the launch of Vintage Masters on Magic Online. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, folks. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. We have some upcoming tournaments, of course. A big one, if you're listening to this show, you probably already know about the NYSE Open 2 on June 20th through 22nd. It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> it's taken over the mantle of, of annual big-time vintage tournament in the Northeast United States. Steve, you went to the last one, and you'll be at this one, right? Oh, yeah. The prize support's awesome. Top 8 will draft Power 9, and then... The top 16 gets Mishra's Workshops and Bazaars. The top 16 gets what again? 9 through 12 gets Mishra's Workshops, and 13 through 16 gets Bazaar Baghads. Awesome, and there are also some extra ancillary prizes like awesome custom Karn Silver Golem and such. That's taking place in Levitin, New York, again June 20 and 22nd. I expect that if you're listening to this and you're thinking of going to that, you probably already know. But if you weren't and you're in the area, it's going to be an awesome collection of great vintage, so check it out. Speaking more locally, we've got some Team Serious Opens coming up June 14. You might have passed that one by the time you listen to this show. In Columbus, that one is. But then there's two new locations for the TSO. Steve, you were asking whether or not they were getting away from Sandusky. Well, we've got two new locations at Kid Force Collectibles in Berea, Ohio on June 28th. And Berea is a suburb of Cleveland, for those who don't know. And at Eternal Games in Warren, Michigan, on July 26. So the Team Serious folks are branching out to Michigan and the Cleveland area in addition to Columbus. Lots of local vintage action in the in the Great Lakes region here. Steve, do you have some new content from an article standpoint? I've just been chugging away at the gush book, Kevin. I've finished Chapter 10, so I only have two chapters to go. But it's, it takes a long time. The last chapter is over 50 pages. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. I think there's no time like the present to move on to conspiracy. Regular listeners will know that we've cheated a little and already started our conspiracy review with Dak Faden, who we discussed at length, and Steve, whom you have a little bit of in-tournament experience playing with now, right? Oh, yeah. You think he's the real deal? He's definitely playable. Fantastic. We'll hear more about him in the near future, I think. I wouldn't be surprised to see some even in the top eight at the NYSE Open, in fact. Yeah, I think it is maybe worth describing a little bit why he's playable. And I think we did a really good job in the last podcast, but I think there are a couple things that I, I could add. Yeah, what did you learn? 
Well, I think one of the things with Dak Faden is that um, because he can cycle through cards and has the stellar ability of stealing artifacts, I think it makes him more of a main deckable card. So he's less narrow because of his versatility. Um, it, he's a little bit, I think he's probably a little bit like Trigon Predator, um, but in blue-red. And one of the key differences, of course, is that Trigon Predator can serve as a win condition and block. He's a little bit of a wall. But Dak Faden steals the, deals with the permanent immediately and gives it to you. So it's a, there are just some key trade-offs, but I think he's a, basically of that card quality, or the, the caliber card of Trigon Predator. And Trigon is definitely a mainstay in the format, so that bodes well for Dak. Yeah, so I think we can use Trigon Predator maybe as a benchmark. Steve, we saved our predictions for Dak for this show officially. Are you comfortable predicting your top eight appearances for him? Well, I think based upon what I just said, we should look at uh, Trigon Predator as a benchmark. Okay, okay. Now, Trigon Predator is a more flexible answer, though, to other things such as Oath of Druids. To me, that would indicate that he wouldn't appear in quite as many numbers. Yeah, probably probably not, because he... he but I think that's because green in blue greens he's slightly more play than blue red. But I I, I think that he, that Dak Faden is more likely to be main decked in Grixis type control decks. So you know I don't think it's going to be that far behind. So how many Trigon Predators have appeared in top eight in the last couple months? Well, Trigon Predator is eminently popular in vintage. There the results for just this year are looks like 50 to 100 top eight appearances in 2014. So well, many, notice, many. That they're, notice they're predominantly in sideboards, though. Oh, yes, definitely. It says here, I mean, there were, you know, and some of these, um, so you also have to look at Kevin, and this second entry for Zurich has two entries for three, and that's the same deck. Absolutely, there's some redundancy, but the point is is that Trigon Predator is putting up about 100 appearances almost that, uh, year to date. I don't expect Dak Faden to come nearly that close. I think the floor for Dak Faden is 50% of Trigon Predator. I think there's uh, going to be a period where people adopt it, and, and that, that's a curve that, you know, it takes some time for people to eventually adopt it, but once it becomes settled part of the format, it's also an expensive card, so that that is also relevant. I mean, it's right now, $35, $40 card, potentially more. Um, but that said, I think um, um, I, I would not expect less than 50% of, again, because Trigon Predator is, I think Dak Faden is more likely to be played in the main deck rather than a sideboard. So I think that's part of the trade-off. You know, it may be the case that blue-green is better situated in contemporary vintage or in the format as it is right now. But I think Dak Faden is slightly uh, more likely as a general matter, holding everything else the same, to be main deck than a Trigon Predator would be. Um, so I'm safe, you know, whatever, let's just see how many appearances there were how many months typically go between our set reviews? There's four sets, that we, big sets we look at a year, so it's three months. Mm-hmm. So let's just look at the last three months of Trigon Predator and count it up. Yeah. Without being, without duplicating it for main deck sideboard, you know. It looks like 39 according to Morphling.d, taking out the duplicate appearances main deck and sideboard since the beginning of March of this year. That's a three month period. Um, I said I thought the floor would be 50% of that. Um, but I do think there's going to be a lag as people adopt it. So I'm willing to go close to that floor. I'm going to say I, I suspect, just to be clear, our next set review will be when? Well, we're going to have this? to be careful because Conspiracy is an extra set. So we might have to do a special Conspiracy report card that's in between prior other set reviews if we want to be consistent. Okay, well, I, I, I'm going to say 18 then. 18. 
Well, that is pretty consistent with your the, the rubric that you put aside. I think that that's probably a little aggressive. I think that Dak is definitely playable. I think you will definitely see some top eights. I don't think people will embrace him quite as much as you've just said. I'm expecting, I'm going to say 10. And I'm concerned that even that might be high, but we'll see. Okay. Now, Steve, before we go on to a few other conspiracy cards that we have not reviewed already at length, I want to talk briefly about the changes this set brings to the vintage band list. For our listeners who've been following along the conspiracy hype, you've probably already heard, though, that conspiracy has added a handful of cards to the vintage band list. First time something's been added to that list since, was it Sherazad, the last one? Yeah. <laughs> Which was an, an interesting can of worms. But the conspiracy cards themselves, the titular cards, the cards that don't go into your deck but start off in the command zone and they have effects on your game as you play, those cards are all banned in vintage. Now, it brought up an interesting point in an interesting article on the Mothership about that edition and what it means, but also calling for players' feedback on whether or not that was the right thing to do or what would be the worst thing that could happen if they didn't make that choice. I am definitely in agreement with this choice to ban those cards. I think that the alternative is that they do bad things to the game and the format in general. Steve, what do you think? I agree. I think that... um... You know, I, I don't really have any qualms about banning cards that weren't even intended for constructed play. <laughs> yep. You know, I mean, for, for you know, for regular constructed play, let alone vintage. Yeah, I think you and I are of like minds on that one. You and I are both of the opinion that the band list should be as low as possible for quote-unquote regular or legitimate constructed cards. But these are definitely an animal into themselves. and And really, I think... Even if you were a purist and tried to make a case that absolutely everything should be legal and vintage, these cards just do strange things to the game of Magic in general. And they have an effect not unlike a Vanguard, whereby every game starts to be about which of these cards you've chosen rather than other deck construction considerations. Yeah. So I definitely support that. But if our listeners feel differently, we'd like to hear about it. Let's move on then to a few additional conspiracy cards that bear discussion. The first is Council's Judgment. This is a fun one. One white white sorcery with the keyword Will of the Council. Starting with you, each player votes for a non-land permanent you don't control. Exile each permanent with the most votes or tied for the most votes. Will of the Council is an ability word that's clearly designed for multiplayer, what with the voting and the political implications, but in a two-player game, with in general unless there's something odd going on with a voting situation you're generally going to get the default value or the lowest value for a vote in this case it is whichever permanent you choose because you mm-hmm. get the first vote <laughs> your opponent would have to it have to be a very odd situation for your opponent to choose another permanent in addition but what it comes down to is that this sorcery for three mana is a untargeted way to exile any permanent your opponent controls, which is pretty handy ability. It's an upgrade from Vindicate. Pretty in that incredible. It, what it comes down to is it's a yeah, it's a white white one Vindicate for a non-land permanent of your opponent of your choice, basically. Yeah, uh, and but better that's not targeted, so it can get rid of something like True Name Nemesis. But it can't hit a or, it can't hit a land, so worse than that. That's right. That's right. And that matters in vintage lands are very important resources is something like dredge this card is going to be actually a lot worse than a vindicate i think 
It's interesting how removal, especially, you know, targeted removal has made a comeback in of late. I wonder if this can help boost removal in general. You know, abrupt decay has really um, put removal back on this back on the map and cards like Bolt and Swords to Plowshares are now appearing everywhere in vintage. The fact that this is not um, targeted means that it can't be redirected with misdirection, which I think is a decisive advantage in its favor. That's a very good point, and it didn't even occur to me until you just said it to the fact that you don't even choose the permanent until resolution. In many cases, it will be fairly obvious, Chase the Mind Sculptor, Blightsteel Colossus, that kind of thing. But not always. In a couple of situations, your opponent might not yeah. even know what you're going for and make a bad decision about countering it or responding to it. Steve, we touched on it a little bit when we reviewed some uh, Theros card that cost one black-white. Last time Vindicate saw play in Vintage was quite some time ago. So even though this card is an upgrade, what do you think about the mana cost of one white-white? No, it's it's not going to be easy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's not, not an ideal casting cost. Um, and a lot of the white decks right now use Cavern of Souls, which can't be used to play this. But that could change. I mean, this is this is a potent removal spell. Not efficient, but potent. And it, the flexibility is unparalleled. This removes Jace, Blightsteel, Oath, Lodestone, Bob. I mean... Yeah. It is the Uber removal in Vintage. Yeah, well, it's not it's not Vindicate, but it, it's better than Vindicate in the sense that it can remove untargeted stuff, and it's and it's not can't be redirected. And, um, but it, it can't remove lands again. So yeah, I mean it's it's quite an interesting card. I think that one of the reasons, in addition, I mean one of several reasons that Vindicate sees no play is Blightsteel Colossus. If you need to destroy a permanent now and it can't destroy Blightsteel, that's almost a deal breaker right there. Yeah. I don't think we need to belabor the point much further. You want to vote on council's judgment? I'm going with zero. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to go there as well. And the chief reason is because, again, the the most comparable card to this is is Vindicate, and Vindicate sees no play right now. And this is, while I'm marginally better in some cases, I don't think it's significantly enough better to justify playing. Yeah, I'm with you. There's there's a chance that if Vintage in some far-flung future becomes all about untargetable permanence or some such, or if White becomes more prominent, which it's on it's on the it's on the wax, it's waxing on, but yeah, it's on the up upswing, but it's not quite there. Okay, let's talk about a couple more cards just for more interest's sake than anything else. Split decision is one blue instant will of the council. Choose target instant or sorcery spell. Starting with you, each player votes for denial or duplication. If denial gets more votes, counter the spell. If duplication gets more votes or the vote is tied, copy the spell. You may choose new targets for the copy. Uh, Owing to our prior discussion on will of the council, this one's default mode in a two-player game is going to be uh, duplication. So this is a effectively one and blue upgrade to uh four yeah but what's the blue one called uh twin cast twin cast yeah so this is a mana upgrade for twin cast making it easier to cast for vintage twin cast has seen some vintage play it's been a while yeah and quite a while actually and it does have some interesting some interesting upside in terms of counter battles and such. It can function kind of like an additional mana drain against other control decks with the upside of being able to really get one over on cards like Ancestral and or Tinker, for example. Yeah. It's actually interesting. This illuminates the, the, the relevance of the choice difference here. So, you know, it what is the what is the what difference does that make? You know, um does it make it that does it matter that you know if you're playing a deck with twin cast sometimes you're playing twin cast because you precisely want to copy it right like for example you play ancestral recall on this your opponent's going to going to vote for the denial oh but your opponent can't 
can't make denial work unless you vote for denial as well. That's the point. See, if denial gets more votes, count the spell. If duplication or the vote is tied. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So in a two-player game, you have the uh, you can force this to be fork in 100% of the cases that you want it to. In some bizarre scenarios, you might cast it and choose denial and see what happens, but then your opponent just gets to choose. So you're yeah. not going to get the better result in those kind of situations. Got it. One of the reasons why I included this card for our review is I like what it says about the development history of magic because the two halves of this card are straight up basically counterspell and fork, as you said earlier. The mana cost, though, of one blue is less than both of those. And the default mode, at least in a two-player game, is fork. In alpha, those two cards had basically the same mana cost, double designated. But Counterspell was a common, and Fork was a rare. The cost, the mana cost of basic Counterspell has been rising throughout the years. The default is now Cancel at 3 mana. <laughs> and the mana cost of Fork has been falling throughout the years. Now we've got this card. You know what's interesting? I, I, just, I, actually... I just think that's a fascinating commentary on the nature of magic design at the basic level. It is, it is. The duplication is now is now slightly less valuable, and Counter Magic is more valuable, and more, therefore more costly. But it's also interesting, I actually... I actually, one of the things that, that came to mind is that the cost of counter magic has actually gone down, but the cost of counter spell has gone up. <laughs> well, so that, that's right. We've got lots of narrow utility counter magic that's gotten much cheaper. You're you're completely right about that. But just to put to put a fine point on it, no one in, would play counter spell in vintage. Counter spell is just hopelessly outclassed by, by almost, which illustrates that it's not the breadth of the scope of the spell that matters for vintage, but rather that the casting cost is often paramount. Agreed completely. However, none of those things, I think, point to it seeing any play anytime soon. I just brought it up as more of an interesting historical note and a rules note for one on Will of the Council. So if your opponent plays Tarmogoyf, <laughs> and you play this, it's essentially a better mana league, right? No. Well, for one, it's only target instant or sorcerer ah, spell. Ah, okay. So the scope of the card is is narrow. Yeah. It's essentially, it only hits the cards that the Flusterstorm hits. Yeah. Flash counter is probably... Okay. Well, no, because flash counter can't hit sorceries. Yeah. So when would your opponent vote for denial? If they play Ancestral Recall and you play this in response, they're going to vote for duplication, right? So you both draw three in most cases? They it has everything to do, I think, with what you say. Because if you say duplication, their vote doesn't matter. Oh right. If you say denial, then their vote does matter. Then they get to choose. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And you you start first. Yep. 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 Interestingly, there has not been a card in Magic that was just a vanilla counter target instant or sorcery. We have vanilla counter target instant. We have vanilla counter target sorcery. But the closest thing to this spell from a vanilla standpoint is actually Muddle the Mixture, which costs blue-blue but has additional upside of transmute. So again, the mana cost of countering an instant or sorcery is, it probably is fairly at one blue these days, but that card has never been printed. Well, I'm not going to predict any appearances of this card, are you? (laughs) No, I'm not. (laughs) All right. Next up is another interesting note. The next few are actually, next two are more note, let's say footnotes than anything else. This is Treasonous Ogre. Three red creature ogre shaman with dethrone, which we can talk about, but isn't really the point, and the ability pay three life colon add red to your mana pool. 
and is 2-3. A 4-mana 2-3, even with the dethrone ability, need not apply in combat for vintage. The only reason I included this card in our discussion was the second ability to turn 3 life into a red mana. I consider this to be a pretty interesting and unique engine card from the standpoint of converting life to mana (laughs) without any other machinations in the middle. I could see this card, for example, being part of some multi-creature animation tutoring chain in some bizarre combo deck a la Flash that involves converting your life to mana. Now at a 3 for 1 ratio, and assuming that you start most vintage games at about 17 or 18, this card's probably good for 5 mana, maybe 6, undisturbed in the very early turns of the game, which means it's not a ritual by any stretch. If you pay 4 for it and get 5 out of it, it wasn't nearly as good as seeding song or any number of other red rituals you get five out of it you have to pay 15 life (laughs) yeah it's no channel either but the fact that you can produce colored mana from just your life is is something new something novel yeah so it seems like they're they're stepping their toe into this water and see what happens mm -hmm. three life is kind of a steep cost for one mana and and to cost have this cost four it's interesting imagine if this cost one yeah then you would now, then you'd be onto something. Yeah, one you could pay your 15 life and, and net four the outset out of the gate. Yeah, now that becomes borderline playable and eternal. Right. But at four mana, no, it's it doesn't function as a ritual at all. It only functions as a cog in a larger machine that involves sneaking creatures into play. I think that's right. So we don't need to really review that one any further. And a similar note on one Dax duplicate, sorry, duplicate, which is two blue red. Creature Shapeshifter, you may have Dax Duplicate enter the battlefield as a copy of any creature on the battlefield, except it gains haste and dethrone. Now, for similar reason, I bring this one up because this is the first time we've had a creature that was basically a clone that granted haste uh, innately. Hmm. There's plenty of other things that put copies of stuff into play and they gain haste, like Kiki-Jiki and whatnot. But this is a creature that, while it's in your library or in any other zone, has zero power and toughness. So something like, say, Protean Hulk, not Protean Hulk, um, something like Protean Hulk that's searching for something that has a zero or low power could find this and put it into play, for example. Again, I think this creature is an interesting cog in a multi-card combo at some point, similar to how Protean Hulk fun- functioned in Flash with a handful of other creatures. Was there a, was there a, um, a clone in the Protean Hulk combo? I don't recall at this point. Uh, not a clone per se, but Body Double was used yeah. to be a copy of Protean Hulk when it was in the graveyard. Okay, that's right. Yeah. But, for example, some, several versions of the Flash Hulk kill relied on Revlark, which could get back Body Double because while it was in the graveyard, it had zero power. That's an example of the kind of interaction that Dax Duplicant also allows. So the, one of the best things that you can do with this, not in a combo, would be like your opponent has Blightsteel Colossus and you play this and you have less life and you attack them. Um, yeah, Dethrone, it triggers on when it attacks the player with the most life. You're right. So if you have fewer life than they do, then you attack them. Your copy of their Blightsteel would be a 13-13, which would definitely be in your favor. <laughs> So they'd have to block with theirs, yours survives, and next turn you win. Uh, no. No. Permanent yours, one must. yours would become a 1-1 one, one yeah. <laughs> after that exchange. You could continue to attack, though, and the next turn you attacked, yeah. assuming light holes hadn't changed, yours would be a 2-2. Two, two. poison counter, yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's a pretty humorous situation. 
But hey, if that if that's how it went down, that's how your opponent would have to block. That'd be a very interesting result. The fundamental problem with this card, besides any potential crazy card combo, is that it's just too expensive for creatures. Vintage creatures these days are basically one, two, or three mana. Generally, the utility slash tempo creatures are two or three mana. There are some exceptions. There's a couple forecasting cost ones like Notion Thief, but it's hard to justify, you know, the artifact creatures, of course. It's hard just to justify playing, paying four mana, including two off, two different colors uh, to get this guy off. You're going to be copying something that's almost always uh, more efficient. Yeah, you're right. And the only situation I think in Vintage that would be a benefit was aforementioned copying of a Blightsteel swinging with yours as a 12-12. I mean, in that case, any just, any other interaction is going to be not in your favor. But in, any, in that case, you'd rather just have Sower. Oh yeah, you'd rather have a dozen other things than this. The, again, the only reason I brought up was as a potential unique cog that hasn't exist, existed prior to now. It could enable a combo the way that Flash enabled a combo. Yeah. The likes of which we haven't seen yet. Like, like for example, if they printed a really efficient big poison creature, you could put this into play, copy it, and maybe go for the win or something. Yeah, but I was thinking also of the fact that it has the zero power and toughness while it's in any other zone other right. than the battlefield. With the Protean Hulk type thing, yeah. Yeah, or something like Revlark, yeah. Uh, there's a number of different ways it could work. And our last candidate from Conspiracy is Deal Broker. Now, you might think... Deal Broker, this is one of those draft cards, isn't it? Why would you guys be talking about it? Well, the simple fact is, is that Deal Broker is a three mana artifact creature construct with the ability tap, draw a card, then discard a card. And it's two, three. And what this could do, and I'm not saying it's a sure thing, but what this could do is provide some additional element of card selection for a workshop deck. Since it is a turn one play, it does have positive interactions with Goblin Welder and a few other things. And card selection is the sort of thing that workshop players are always struggling to find. Steve, what do you think about the simple notion of having a workshopable looter? Yeah, I mean, workshops have never really had a great draw draw engine. So in the past, they've used cards like, oh, what's that helm card from... Grafted Skullcap? No, Crown of something. Mindstorm Crown from... You're right. At the beginning of your upkeep, draw a card if you had no cards in hand at the beginning of this turn... If you had a card in hand, Mindstorm Crown deals one damage to you. <laughs> and then, yeah, and there's another card like that. I think you know you can. Yeah, the Grafted Skullcap from Saga. Yeah, and then there's of course Staff of Nin. Um, so you know this is it's sort of like you know the old comparison between Jam Day Tome and Jolum Tome. But um, yep. you know Workshop decks have the capacity to uh, recoup um, uh, to recoup card advantage more than more than they uh, often had in the past because of cards like Crucible now and and uh, Buried Ruin and things like that. Um, you know, so if you get Buried Ruin and Crucible going, you could really do something. But, you know, one of the problems is that Workshop decks no longer use Goblin Welder, which is where this card would really shine. Um, you know, it could you, could you could deposit a really big artifact in your graveyard and then weld it in and get a huge advantage like Spine of Ishza or something mm. of that, that nature. And that kind of interaction is no stranger to workshop decks. The Welder and Bazaar of Baghdad have been played together in many different iterations. Yeah. This one doesn't have the built-in card disadvantage of Bazaar, of course, and it does still synergize with several of the things you listed. Yeah. Mostly Crucible of Worlds plus Buried Ruin. I mean, you, the thing is, you're not going to want to play this on turn one or turn two, likely, because you need those turns to, to develop your board and disrupt the opponent. Um and I think that's one of the primary tensions with this card. I'm glad you said it. Yeah, but I mean, there is value in what 
this does. Clear value. This is the kind of card I would really enjoy putting in a in a in a welder stacks deck if if those existed. But <laughs> and this card is definitely competing for space with cards like Staff of Nin, which many players really prefer these days. Yeah. It does have the upside though. Well, Staff can deal damage, but it does have the upside compared to something like say Crucible or a handful of other non-creatures in that when you don't need the searching ability or the the sifting ability this card can uh, go aggro aggro and finish your opponent off so in that sense it would be a very well tailored card for a deck like stacks where when you're still applying the thumb screws you're searching for lock components and such but as soon as you have control then this card can switch gears and end the game for you yeah it does have a little bit of positive interaction in that capacity I think that you're right, that the real, the, the mana cost for this card is deceptive, I guess is how I would put it. Workshop decks play all those cards that cost two and three mana because they can come down on the first turn with a Workshop or Ancient Tomb plus Mox. This is one of those cards that if you play it on your first turn, your opponent is going to be happy that you did because <laughs> right. it, it's it's less threatening even than Metalworker and is not furthering your game plan fast enough such that the only way this would be a good first-turn play is if it always also came with a Lotus and a Chalice and a Sphere of Resistance, which is pretty greedy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess there is a possibility, again, that workshops could be designed on a different basis. So, um, you know, right now, workshop decks are almost entirely, with I think some of the exceptions of some of the Affinity decks, constructed around the principles of uh, essentially Nether Void-type principles, like O'Brien school principles, locking your mm -hmm. with spheres and, and sphere copies. Um, but if you were to design a workshop deck maybe around, you know, the welder synergy, it's hard to think why you wouldn't just use Bizarre, you know, but, but Deal Broker, you know, in a workshop deck certainly would be a nice, a nice uh, potential tool. And I, I'm glad you brought up Affinity too, because we're frequently guilty of lumping workshop together only as the, the mana denial strategies. Yeah. The Affinity build really has absolutely no use for this card, given that that deck runs Skull Clamp. You don't need to loot when you're drawing a dozen cards a turn. Okay, I think what I heard from you is zero appearances. Is that right? That's my prediction. What do you think about the prospects of this card in Legacy Mud? I know that deck is pretty rare. Um, so Legacy Mud is more likely to have the, um, the uh, um, equipment that gives haste. Lightning Greaves? Yeah, I think that makes that this card a little bit better. Um, so if you could, you know... In, does the Legacy version often have Welder, too? I'd say it's less than 50% Welder. Okay. The Mono Brown version is probably more common, but we're talking about a fringe deck to begin with, yeah. so... Probably, probably playable there, I think. And that environment and deck do not have the benefit of opting for Bazaar of Baghdad, so this effect might be a little more welcome there. Agreed. And speaking of Grafted Skullcap and Mindstorm Crown... Let's talk about Coercive Portal. Four mana artifact, Will of the Council, again. At the beginning of your upkeep, starting with you, each player votes for Carnage or Homage. If Carnage gets more votes, sacrifice Coercive Portal and destroy all non-land permanents. If Homage gets more votes or the vote is tied, draw a card. So assuming your opponent's not interested in getting the world blown up, you've kind of got yourself a half a Howling Mine for four mana here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this, this is this is essentially JM Daytone without the mana, without the activation costs, and, and it triggers on your upkeep. This is this will draw you a card every turn. Just like Split Decision, whereby if you vote for homage, then your opponent's vote is 
rendered irrelevant. You'll draw the card. If you vote for Carnage, then you give the choice to your opponent. Do they want you to have the card or to blow up the board? Which makes it, I think, you know, the question is, is this better than a Mindstone Crown <laughs> or a Grafted Skullcap? Um, Staff of Nin. Staff of Nin, yeah. So is it worth taking the damaging ability off of Staff of Nin to save two mana on it? Right. And I would say you'd probably get a fair amount of argument amongst Staff of Nin players as to whether or not that was really worth it. Right. Now, <laughs> it would be awesome if there was a modal card that allow you to choose Coercive Portal or Staff of Nin. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. However, there is no such thing at this time. I am of the opinion that this card is probably not as good as Staff of Nin because the one damage is actually important at stymieing a few important anti-workshop cards. And a la our discussion about the broker, you don't want to play a card like this on the first turn, even though you certainly could in many cases. This is the kind of card you want to play as a follow-up on turns three plus, at which point I believe Staff of Nin in many cases quickly becomes superior. Right. Not, not always the case, of course, but in many cases. It's part of the reason why a six-mana card can be seen as a draw engine in a workshop-type deck is that you don't want a three- or four-mana card to be your draw engine because you're spending that mana disrupting your opponent and taking control of the game. You want your draw engine to be like Brain Geyser was back in the Keeper days. You want it to be expensive and at the end of your curve. So what do you think, Steve? Um, you know, I think it's a really interesting card. I'm not convinced it's better than Mindstone Crown. I do. It is obviously better than Grafted Skullcap. <laughs> no doubt of that. Um, Granted. I I tend to think that this card may have some potential. Um, yeah, actually, I, I do. I think that this card is, is potentially playable. Quite interesting. Well, the two cards you compared it to, though, don't see any play. No, no, but Staff the, the Crown and the Cap haven't played for ages. Staffanin does. You think that some players will replace the Staff with this? Well, I'm not sure, but I think that it could. It would be potentially good in the Control Workshop Prison deck. Is like a, you know, I don't know, a pair of. I mean, imagine. I mean, you know, imagine you have like a Metal Worker deck, right? You could imagine using a pair of these too, right? So. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I think this is I think this is definitely vintage playable. I think it's probably probably better than Mindstone Crown, although I'm not convinced. I think it is, and I think it's better than Grafted Skullcap. Um, I think it's probably comparable to Staff of Nin. Staff of Nin has put up in the last three months approximately ten appearances. That sounds about right. Top eight appearances. Uh, the first example early March, yeah. So approximately ten in the last quarter. I would say, well, you might be right. I would say out of ten appearances there's a fair chance that one or two or three of those players will be attracted to the two-mana discount on the Coercive Portal. I'm still of the opinion that Staff of Nin is the superior card, but not in 100% of situations, that's for sure. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, well, shall we do predictions on this one? Sure. You want to go first or second? I'll go second. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Coercive Portal, Staff of Nin sees 10 per quarter approximately. Hmm. I'm wavering on one versus zero still on this one because I do think people might be slow to adopt, but I think I'm going to I think I'm going to trust your assessment that people might like this and go with one. Yeah, that sounds that sounds about right to me. Um, I'm going to say I'll just go take the over. I'll I'll say two. All right, fair enough. Well, Steve, that brings us to the end of our conspiracy review. There wasn't much to it. We covered almost all of it when we covered DAC before. 
We didn't predict much other than what we covered with Dak Faden. Just coercive portal, and that only just. What are your thoughts on this set as a whole? Well, I had the opportunity to observe people drafting it yesterday, and they seemed to really enjoy it. I mean, they they put some some money cards in here, like misdirection, and you know, you can get some foil. I think foil brainstorm and other things that people mm-hmm. really like. So I, I welcome you know sets like this in the future. The draft mechanics look really cool and and not overdone. So you know, this is just great. There's another expression of how how uh, vital uh, magic is right now. How healthy it is. Yeah, agreed on all fronts. Also, don't forget there's a, I wouldn't say cycle, but a group of five legends for the EDH crowd. And they're pretty aggressively developed legends, too. None of them need apply and vintage, but they are interesting and good cards. I've got a couple of boxes of Conspiracy sitting next to me here and look forward to drafting them with some friends. Sounds awesome. Let's move on and talk about Vintage Masters. Now, it's worth noting that Conspiracy is not legal in Magic Online. It's not, sorry, coming to Magic Online, or legal for that matter. But many of the cards printed first in Cardboard in Conspiracy are also being printed in Vintage Masters. There's a, there's a significant overlap between the two in order to bring the key new, uh, otherwise brand new cards into the online and align the two print and online formats for Vintage and Eternal in general. But we don't need to belabor that point. What I do want to talk about with you, Steve, is the important inclusions and exclusions from Vintage Masters now that we know the full set list. We knew up front, for example, that the Power 9 would be in, which is obviously of paramount importance. And we also knew pretty early on that they were going to be distributed in special rarities and such, which is exciting and interesting. It should also make sure that their supply is reasonable. But what they've definitely done is to address some of the key ultra-expensive-slash-rare online cards with Vintage Masters and get them into the hands of players, hopefully such that their prices will come down, in some cases a lot. And I'm pointing to Force of Will, Dual Lands, Lion's Eye Diamond, that kind of thing. You've already seen that happen to a large degree. Oh yeah, the speculation has already had that effect. So at this point, I think we can just chalk up Vintage Masters to bringing the digital and print formats into near alignment, near perfect alignment. There are still a couple of exceptions, but they're really the third and fourth tier fringe cards that really don't shouldn't concern anyone. But it is interesting, a handful of the cards that they didn't include in Vintage Masters, which are both relatively high-priced, Magic Online, and Vintage Staples. The best example of that, in my opinion, is Wasteland. Yeah. The fact, the fact that that card is pushing $80 online and they didn't put it in an internal-focused set such as this is really kind of a head-scratcher. It might mean that they have other plans for Wasteland, yeah. but they were so apparently cognizant of the price considerations for many other cards, a dozen other cards at least, and they are included almost all the most important colorless vintage lands in the set right. already. That's really a surprise that Wasteland's not in there. Steve, given that we just talked about a draft a heavily draft-influenced format in Conspiracy, combine that with the, I guess, modest stated goals of Vintage Masters in terms of fleshing out the digital card pool. 
What do you think about what they did for this set as a whole, then, in terms of inclusion? Actually, remarkably happy. Shock, shockingly pleased. Um, That's good. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they have basically 99.9% of the key cards here is is incredible feat when you think about it. I mean, include and, and printing Force of Will is no small thing, you know. That's just definitely a huge thing. That's that maybe the biggest thing of all. I think the only question mark I have, I mean, so I picked up the misdirections. You know, Tanguire, Misdirection, Wasteland are the big ones. I don't know if you want to mention a few others, but um, it seems to me that um, you know, I think City of Traders, but the um, obviously the Fetchlands aren't here either. But it seems to me that the key question is going to be how much are the uh, how much is the Power Nine going to settle at. Uh, and that's Agreed. that's going to be the most important factor going forward that will influence the success or inviability of, of vintage online or not. I think it seems pretty clear to me that the fetch lands are due for a reprint in general. People have been clamoring for cardboard fetch land reprints for quite a while, both the onslaughts and the Zendikars actually. And so that must almost certainly be on Wizards' radar. The notion that that won't happen in the next one or two years is probably just foolish. Yeah. So I think that's destined to happen. Wasteland we already covered. City of Traders is an interesting example to me because that's one of those cards that's purely eternal play. <laughs> that does. I mean, that doesn't even see play in EDH. Even though it's a two-mana land, it's just so antithetical to the way people build EDH mana bases that it's super rare. So it seems like that would be a super obvious inclusion in a set like this, and I would like to have seen them sacrifice limited play even a little bit to to get it in there. Because, in my opinion, there's very few other contexts in which they would want to print a City of Traders. And there's not going to be a Vintage Masters 2. <laughs> so I don't know what to expect from City of Traders. They might shoehorn it into some dual deck somewhere or something. I don't know. It strikes me as an odd situation for them to exclude that particular card. Yeah. Wasteland, by contrast, could easily be put in any number of products. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, Wasteland could be a, a special T card or it could be put in almost any, you know, but it's hard to imagine exactly where they have in mind. Maybe it's the, it's the card they have in mind is the next, I don't know, promo card. That's a good point. If they're saving for a promo card, Wasteland would be a good one at this point. You might be right about that. Maybe that'll be the, the points reward card a la Force of Will next time around. I think this set, even though I won't be drafting it myself, I think this set is a continuation of what we've seen in Modern Masters and now Conspiracy and now Vintage Masters, and that is they've really kind of hit the ball out of the park in terms of niche sets with specific stated goals, but then secondary excellent draft formats. And maybe excellent draft format is the stated goal of Conspiracy, but at least with Modern Masters and Vintage Masters, they have a primary purpose, but then they've crafted a fun, interesting, limited environment around that purpose. And that's really kind of awesome. I wonder how many more times they can do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I hopefully, uh, hopefully many more. I could imagine seeing Conspiracy versions 2, 3, and beyond, because that seems like it's just ripe for design space. Yeah, that you can't... Again, this gets to a point we, that we made in an earlier podcast, which is that Wizards has more and more uh, avenues now for printing cards 
um, you know, for specialty cards, for designing for particular kinds of formats or magic experiences than ever before, you know. So the whole comment like, you know, Wizards would be hit by a bus before they reprint Mana Drain was made in the context in which reprints meant introducing cards into Type 2. The only mm -hmm. sets that they printed that weren't legal were the unglued sets. But now they found all these avenues with Commander and Conspiracy and who knows, and, and like Modern Masters and all sorts of other things where they can literally print sets and they don't have to have them be legal in Type 2 and Standard. Um, and they can make them for draft formats, Commander, you know, all different kinds of constructed um, and, and limited fun you know, formats. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's just exciting to see all these uh, new opportunities for printing cards. I haven't even mentioned uh, from the vault. One thing I like about everything you just said is how they can target those products to interesting combinations of, of uh, player psychographics too. Yeah. The commander products are clearly targeted at the commander community, of course, which is primarily uh, like Timmy and Johnny styles, but they, they put a couple of spike cards in there, like Flusterstorm, mm -hmm. just to pique people's interest. And Conspiracy is the same way. Targeted at those those Johnnies and Spikes that like to do cube, but then they put a cycle of legends in there to appeal to the Timmies or the, the EDH crowd. I just, I just think it's fascinating how they're tailoring these products to be majority at this type of player with minority at this type of player to make everything interesting to everyone in some degree. And Vintage Masters is another example that's targeted at the vintage spike, of course, but it also has a bone thrown to Pauper, where they're changing the rarities of some cards, lowering a handful of things to common, shaking up that format with new inclusions, but also including some key reprints for the EDH crowd. Yeah, it's, also, like, it's also designed to be a limited format. I mean, that's the big... And, yeah, and that one too. Yeah. So you're appealing to that cube crowd as well. Exploration, for, for example, is an excellent reprint. First-time reprint. Has no application in Vintage. And it doesn't even have any application in Limited. I mean, you might play it, but it's not there for that. It's not a bomb rare or anything. That's a pure reprint targeted at the reprint crowd, the EDH crowd mostly. Yeah. I like the fact that they're spreading, and they're broadly and narrowly targeting the interests in these new sets. Without being beholden to standard. Yep. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yep, yep, yep. And in fact, so, in a sense, they're not even beholden to constructed. I mean, they simply said at the outset, these cards will be banned in legacy and vintage. So they, they did it, you know? Yeah. You know, that's a really good point. That's another spin on it, is not being beholden to even a format of magic. That, I mean, that's a completely unprecedented thing. It would be like, you know, imagine if they had printed, I don't know, a, ba a base expansion set, and they said, oh, yeah, we're going to print this set, but this card is banned in standard, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back in 1994 or 95, that would have boggled the mind. 2002, it would have boggled. <laughs> you know, it would have been saying, we're printing this card for just extended and type 1, you know? but won't be legal in type, type 2. You know, interestingly, it almost goes back to one of the original visions that they had for Arabian Nights and Ice Age. And you've written about this, about how those were expected to be standalone environments that were still compatible with the base game, but, they, but the, the idea was they were not beholden to building one larger game necessarily. But then they changed their mind and went ahead and did that. Yeah. And now we've, now we've sort of come full circle where they can print cards for any subset of the game that they choose. Really interesting. So, Steve, I take it from your comments that you consider Vintage Masters to be a success in its entirety. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, the, the one question mark will be the price of Power 9. Um, 
if Power Nine is, you know, over $100 a piece, I don't think it can be said to be a success because the objective of, of Vintage Masters is to introduce vintage into, into Magic Online environment. But in terms of the cards that were selected for inclusion, I think they really hit a home run here. Um, you know, again, like maybe three cards that aren't here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that are really critical. And the rest that aren't here aren't here because they're fetch lands or they were recently printed. So this is really, they did a fantastic, they really did their homework. And let's be clear, when you say there are cards that aren't here, those cards are still legal. They have been printed online. Yeah. They're just expensive. That's right. And we would like to have seen the cost come down. Yeah. Yeah. And I would echo everything you just said. I would encourage our listeners, any of you who are uh, maybe just getting into vintage with this introduction into the online, go draft the heck out of this format because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more of you that draft this, the more power gets introduced and the more the price comes down. Yeah. <laughs> So please help the supply. (laughs) (laughs) Do your community service. (laughs) That's right. Have your pet spayed or neutered. That brings us to our question of the week for this episode. Aside from Dak Faden, what do you think is the best conspiracy card for Vintage? Again, not counting Dak Faden, what do you think is best? Thank you for listening to episode 36 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. It's not safe for the game! <laughs> <laughs>